in our reading, and we are indeed grateful that the Lord grants His Word to us, a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what God promises to do, He does in His timing. And He does it in accordance with His good pleasure. And He does it for the sake of His glory. But He also does it for the sake of His people. And what can, what can seem long is, is but like a day to God, and where with Him a day is like a thousand years, also a thousand years is like a day, but, but God doesn't forget. He doesn't forget His covenant, He doesn't forget His promises, He doesn't forget His people, He hears their cries and He saves them, and He does that for the sake of His covenant promises that He had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even as the introduction of, of Luke reminded us, Luke is written to declare to those who read Luke that God accomplishes. God finishes what He starts. God fulfills His promise. And as the narrative opens in Luke, we see that the events that surround Zechariah are events that show to us again that God is a God who is true to His Word as He answers the prayers of Israel that are prayed in accordance with His will and, and promise, just as we will see that He also answers the prayers of those among the Gentiles in accordance with His will and His promises. So we're going to take a look tonight uh, at the, the, the backdrop to God's joyous answer to Israel's prayer, a, a historical backdrop, uh, but then also take a look at these prophetical uh, proclamatory transformations that are declared in our passage this evening. So first of all, we're going to take a look at the historical backdrop. As we mentioned before, Luke writes an orderly account. And we can see that in chapter 1. That very first chapter, you can see the orderliness of the chapter. Uh, we see that it begins with Zechariah, it ends with Zechariah, and in the middle, uh, we hear of matters regarding the women, Elizabeth and Mary. And we see this also in, in what we hear, first of all, about the birth of John in chapter 1, and then the birth of Jesus in chapter 2. We will see this also in a moment when we compare Zechariah with another prominent character that Luke pens and tells us about in the book of Acts. But we'll also see it in the fact that in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, all three of those chapters, as you know, they all begin by telling us that there is a foreign king that's reigning in the times when God is at work. Our passage starts with that. It doesn't start, first of all, by telling us about Zechariah. It tells us about when Zechariah had these things happen, and it was in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And chapters 2 and chapter 3 start out like that too. They tell us about what God is doing in the midst of a time when a foreign king is reigning. And how he is accomplishing, as the passage, as, as Luke begins with, 
in our, in, uh, as we looked at this morning, that God is accomplishing what he sets out to do in these particular times, in these political times, in these times where these potentates are on the throne. And, and so often that's the case, isn't it? It's in the midst of those who are prominent in the political world, those people who are feared, those people who are intimidating, Caesar Augustus being another one, right? The, the August king. These people who are firmly ensconced with honor and authority, or so it would seem anyway, it's in the midst of those times that God is doing his mighty works. He's doing his greatest works. He's doing his awesome works of power and grace. We see that way back in the times of the Exodus when we were looking at some of those chapters. Uh, we see this in the times of Assyria and Babylon and the Medes and the Persians. And now we see this especially in the time of Rome and those who rule during the times of Rome, the days of Rome. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Well, are these not the people who are in power? Are these not the people to be feared? Above all, are these not the ones who have control of these people's lives? Are these not the ones who are to be, in essence, the ones who are worthy of all our trust and our allegiance? Wouldn't they wish that to, to be their thought for us? Wouldn't they wish that for us to be thinking about them that way? Yes, you've got a king here after Edom's line. Herod, the Edomian. Esau's line is in power in Judea. But that doesn't mean that God has forgotten his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, that uh, he has forgotten his ways of, of covenant, that his covenant ways are scuttled by the powers that be. No, God overcomes. God's, God's the one that's worthy of our ultimate trust. God's the one that's in charge. And, and, and we will see that as he accomplishes everything that he sets out to do according to his timetable. And he does that in, in answer to the prayers for the joy and gladness and salvation of his people. And certainly for the glory of his name. But you know, that is something that is so important to remember. In our own time, right, when we get concerned about human government and we recognize what impact they can have, that's not to be glossed over or understated, but, but God's people have always been battling that. But we get consoled in those times when we consider those potentates to realize again that when we get concerned about human government, we need to remember again that they are not the ultimate leaders, and rather that belongs to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that's a great consolation for us to see. God is going to accomplish what he sets out to do, uh, potentates or not. But consider also Zechariah the priest, and, and maybe... You know, this, this may be not something that you've, you've thought about before. I don't know, maybe you have. But, but I, I think 
Again, if we remember that Luke is, is writing an orderly account here that's remarkably structured, and this can only happen, mind you, you know, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. When you, whenever you look at the Scriptures as a whole, when you see it put together, you just recognize that this is not something some mere human can put together. There had to be divine inspiration behind it all. Uh, and it's certainly true here in the way that Luke pens what he pens. And it's so remarkably structure, structured, this account that he gives us, that it, it's, it's good for us to read Acts into Luke and Luke into Acts. And one of the places that we should do it is right here. When we consider Zechariah. Because we need, as we look at Luke's work as a whole, under the inspiration of the Spirit, we need to consider Zechariah alongside of Cornelius, of all people, in Acts 10, if we get to the, if we want to get to the depth of what's happening here in Luke 1. And why is that? Well, we need to consider both the similarities between Cornelius and Zechariah, and also the differences between Cornelius and Zechariah. With both men, and only with them, do we hear an angel say in Luke and in Acts that their prayers have been heard? Here in Luke 1.13 from Zechariah, there in Acts 10 verse 31 with Cornelius. Both of them are called just or righteous. Both of them are men of position. One is a priest, one is a centurion. Both see an angel. Both are terrified. Both offer offerings of sorts. The priest offers the more formal offering, doesn't he, with the incense. But in Acts 10, verse 4, we read that Cornelius' offerings are likened to the memorial offering of Leviticus 3.3. He had brought an offering of prayer and alms that was remembered by God. Then there's differences, of course. One's a Jew of Jews, really, and the other's a Gentile of Gentiles. One has no house, no children, right? Because Elizabeth is barren, while Cornelius has a household. One is of the church, you might say, so to speak, the other of the state. One ends up with a, without a tongue, though later loose while the other experiences many tongues. And those aren't just coincidences. These are not matters of coincidences, but of order and purpose for, the, for Luke, inspired by the Spirit. They center in the fact that both of them have been praying and both have had their, answer, their prayers answered, one for the sake of the Jews and the other for the sake of the Gentiles. One prior to the coming of Christ, and the other in the aftermath of his coming. And what's all this praying all about? Well, some say that Zechariah had been praying for a son, and yet there isn't anything, any evidence for that in our passage. No explicit indication of that. The lack of the son, the reason why that's brought up in part, is what it's that it, it contrasts with the fertility of Cornelius the prayer is in the incense, an incense that is symbolic 
from the prayers of the saints. Revelation 5, verse 8, and Revelation 8, verse 3 mention that too. That uh, incense is symbolic of the prayer of the saints. When Cornelius prayed, it went up to God in a similar fashion like the prayers of Israel went up to God in the midst of their slavery in the days of Pharaoh. Remember, we looked at that in Exodus 2.23 where the prayers of, of God's people cried up, cried out, and they went up to the Lord. The prayers that accompanied the incense were prayers that recalled God's past deliverances and prayers for the Lord's continued and promised peace upon his people. These are prayers that are being remembered by God. Zechariah will speak more of that later when he who was dumb speaks in the spirit with the tongue that he gets back. God remembers the peace and the consolation that Israel needed and that God had promised. And as the lot fell on Matthias to take Judah's place in the first chapter of Acts in verse 26, so also in this first chapter, the lot falls. And this time it falls on Zechariah to offer the privileged prayer of incense before the Lord in the holy place. Now, we don't offer such incense-laden prayers anymore, but the privilege of prayers, prayer is still ours. Now, through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, we may offer up prayers of various kinds, including that the peace of God may continually be, continually be ours to know. And we come not merely to an earthly holy place like, like Zechariah did, uh, in, 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 and like through someone like Zechariah in, in an old covenant anticipation like the people who waited outside for him. But now we come to the most holy place in heaven, don't we? In heaven above with our prayers and our worship in a new covenant and New Testament context through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And so the, this joyous answer to these prayers have a backdrop. Uh, and they are meant to console us and to move us to, to prayers of peace ourselves. But the joyous answer to these prayers to Israel are also filled with prophetic transformation. First of all, by the angel himself. He starts by telling Zechariah here that he need not fear. Fear not. What a comfort to know that. He need not be afraid as he sees the angel. He was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Don't be afraid. That's such a, a constant refrain in Luke. Because when God comes to us, uh, it's, a, it's such a blessing to hear that. You know, what, what a comfort to know that as God's words comes to us, as it comes to Zechariah, fear doesn't have to be our response. Despite our sin. And that's because when God comes to us, He comes to us in covenant mercy. Don't be afraid, shepherds. Don't be afraid, women at the tomb. Don't be afraid, disciples in the upper room. Don't be afraid. Be at peace. 
be filled with joy and gladness. And why be filled with peace? Is that not what you've been praying for? This is what God promises to give. God comes to take our fears away and to to fill us with his peace in Jesus Christ to change things that are wrong and cursed and make them blessed and right. And Zechariah is told that he is going to be filled with joy and gladness. He says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call him John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. You will have joy and gladness. And why is it? Why joy and gladness? Well, joy and gladness are what come when God comes to deliver his people and change their lives. Joy and gladness are what come when God comes. And, and we see that again, and you could almost add that kind of to the backdrop, you might say, but it, it's, part of, it's part of this transformation that was promised. It is prophetic transformation. Uh, Luke, uh, Isaiah 35 is, is a classic text that speaks to us uh, about these things. And I'm going to read just a couple of verses there from Isaiah 35, and, and you see that, that idea of joy and gladness coming through there again. In verse 4, for instance, it says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Doesn't Zechariah have that? He has an anxious heart. He's fearing. And it says, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He'll come and save you. And then in verse 6 we read, And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, and so on. It's interesting that Zechariah is going to have a moment where he's going to be mute, but not forever, because great things are coming. A great one is coming. And his muteness is going to be loosened and he will sing for joy. And why is that? Well, because verse 10 says, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Uh, Isaiah 51 verse 3 speaks about this too. For the Lord comforts Zion he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. God's coming. God's coming to make a difference. God's coming to bring a change. And uh, he's going to bring a transforming and saving work. It's what Mo Mary is going to sing about soon. Uh, it, it's what the angel prophesies will happen to Zechariah and Elizabeth and what John, whose name means gift of God, is going to proclaim to God's people in preparation for the Lord's coming. 
And there's more transformation. You'll have a son in your old age. Barrenness will turn to life. And that's covenantal. That's something that only God can do. What's impossible with man is possible with God. Only God can bring life from death. We, we saw that as we were looking at those events with Abraham and Sarah. Only God can resurrect. And he promised to Abraham and Sarah long ago those very things. And now we see the New Testament version of it here. And it's a reminder that God and God alone can fulfill this covenant promise of bringing life from death. He's going to do it. He's going to be faithful. The one who is faithful will do it. And he does. And not only that, not only will there be this immediate gladness for Zechariah and, and Elizabeth, but we also read here that there's going to be this transformation for Israel as a whole. For God's people as a whole. When John will come, he'll come in the spirit of Elijah, we read, don't we? He'll, he'll not be filled with spirits, right? He's not to, uh, we hear this, that he will not drink wine or strong drink, but he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He won't be filled with spirits, but he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. He'll come for the same reason that Elijah had come long before. And he will come in promise to the Old Testament prophecy of Malachi 4, 5. He'd come as a forerunner to God himself. He'd make a people ready for God. Well, how would he go about doing that? Well, he's going to be proclaiming a, method, a message of repentance, a message of transformation, a message of change. It'd be a message that would impact how people would consider God, how they'd consider their families, and how they'd consider their attitude. In the days of Elijah, the covenant people had turned to follow the Baal. And they were fence-sitters with no passion for God and no allegiance for Him. Only after the sacrifice at Carmel did the attitude change. And the people would say, the Lord, he is God. Well, that was needed again in the coming of the new Elijah. Especially since the Lord was coming in judgment over evil, just as he had done in past days against Israel, only this time to judgment in the coming of his son at the cross. But prior to his coming, there had to be a message of change so that people would be ready for his coming. He was worthy of having a people who were ready for his coming through a message of repentance. People needed to look differently upon God. If they looked differently upon God in recognizing their sin before him and their need for him as their savior, well, this would make a difference in the way their family would be, uh, life would be as well. He says he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It was true that uh, Jesus would divide families. 
who followed him, those who followed him, and those who wouldn't. But for those who his families turned to the Lord from their sin and believed on him for their salvation, change would bring harmony to their home. It'd bring transformation to their homes, and that's what people needed. And that's still what families need today. If people really want to know what will bring harmony to their homes, it has to do with repentance and faith. They need to see their wrongs. They need to confess them before God and their family members. And there will be healing. There will be restoration. There will be transformation. There will be harmony. And it cannot happen. Of course, it cannot happen unless people heed the message of change and transformation. Well, it did happen to many in the times leading up to the coming of Jesus. And it will happen to many more families before the return of Jesus. Right now, the message of repentance and faith in Jesus is going out to people to change households, to bring order and wisdom and a spirit of penitence to people's homes and people's lives who are then ready and fit to be used in the Lord's service and as a people who are ready for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ even when we're not sure when that day will be. Through the message of the gospel, through the message of repentance changed by God's grace, we'll be making people ready for His coming. And that change will bring joy and gladness to people's homes. And I pray that the gospel is bringing joy to your home and to your life. That message of, of penitence, of repentance and faith. If that is what you're praying may occur in your life, God's peace, God's change in your life, God's salvation in your life through Jesus Christ, you can rest assured that such change is yours and will be yours. And why is that? Because long ago, God answered the prayers of Israel to bring about that peace, to bring about that salvation, to bring about that change, to prepare a people for God's service. Not merely by sending John, but the one to whom John was pointing, Jesus Christ. The salvation which God prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to the Gentiles, and the glory of his people Israel. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men to change their lives and answer their prayers that way. May that be our joyful response to God who hears the prayers of His people for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's take a moment.